Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 26th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Omelia, creators of the Digital War Room platform for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is Focus on Privacy, the Facebook Internet Tracking Case. We're pleased to welcome as our guest, David Strait, who is based in the New York office of Stewart's Law and is the head of investor protection litigation. He is regarded as an outstanding litigation strategist. David is co-lead counsel in the Facebook litigation. Welcome, David. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, let's let's start right out by starting with the most elementary of questions. What exactly is digital privacy litigation? That's a good question. Uh, Digital privacy litigation is a fairly new area uh, for us lawyers. Uh, Privacy is a concept that goes back hundreds of years in our Anglo-Saxon common law system, Uh, but it's something that's uniquely uh, relevant to us Americans because privacy is a part of our constitution. Digital privacy didn't really become an issue uh, until the internet took off, uh, something that uh, legislators, lawyers, judges cared about going back for decades really became an issue in the past decade or two. Uh, in the past, say, five or ten years, uh, we've had an explosion of lawsuits related to violations of digital privacy rights. Uh, this would be the inadvertent or sometimes purposeful collecting of private data, uh, the misuse of the data, and other sites, uh, sorts of um, infractions that um, users and, and owners of data care very deeply about. So David, how does digital privacy litigation differ from data breach litigation? Right. Those are two very different concepts. Most people are familiar with data breach litigation. That's a, it's a more uh, traditional form of this litigation. Uh, data breach litigation involves a, a situation where you, the owner of personally identifiable information, we sometimes call that PII uh, or other sorts of private information, you entrust that data uh, to somebody, say your bank, uh, say to your doctor, uh, or sometimes to a website, and you have voluntarily given them information, and they've told you they will keep the information secure. You trust them. And then through either their inadvertence or through their recklessness, they allow someone else to hack into their system, steal the information or data breaches where the information is misused uh, by people who don't have authority to have it. So your litigation would be um, involving claims against the people you trusted your information with. Um, the, the new area that we're talking now about di- digital privacy litigation is a whole different concept. This is litigation uh, against people who shouldn't have your information to begin with. These are people who have violated your privacy, people you did not consent to have the information. So it's, a, it's the flip side of the more common data breach litigation. You know, it might interest some of our listeners to know that we ran into you when we were lecturing up in Delaware and we were talking there about the digital trail of the Craigslist killer, which was also one of the podcasts that we did very recently. And that's where you talked to us a little bit about the Facebook Internet tracking case. So can you tell us what the issues are in that case and explain, because I'm sure a lot of listeners don't know exactly what this tracking is. Right. Uh, The Facebook Internet tracking case is, is fairly interesting. It's getting a lot of press. Uh, in part because Facebook has become so ubiquitous. We're at a point now where 
almost one in seven people on the planet is a member of Facebook. This is a company that started in a dorm room back in 2004, not that long ago, and they've become one of the dominant uh, forces on the planet. So I think the case has garnered attention simply because of the size of the company. But I, from my perspective as a lawyer, my concern is not how ubiquitous the company is. It's much more how um, how unique their, the actions were and how important they are to our, um, to our society. In the case, um, we are pursuing claims on behalf of, of Facebook users um, whose use of the Internet was tracked by Facebook. When you become a member of the social network, you consent, perhaps, to having your Internet usage tracked on other websites. So you're logged on to Facebook. You then open up another tab in your browser, and you decide to go to, say, CNN.com or some other website. The fact that you visited that website, what you did when you were there, uh, et cetera, is recorded on, by your computer and then transmitted to Facebook. Uh, so they know exactly where you were visit, uh, visiting on the web while you're logged into Facebook. Um, however, the limit to your consent to this tracking uh, was for those times when you were logged on to Facebook. Once you log off Facebook, Facebook was supposed to stop this tracking. They were supposed to stop monitoring where you went on the Internet. And a researcher in Australia uncovered the fact that, that perhaps, in fact, we believe that he was right, uh, Facebook w did not stop its tracking. Hmm. Very interesting. So, and, and how does that compare? Or what are the issues in the the Google Safari tracking case? Because that has some similarities, does it not? Right. Bo both are in the news. These are the two big uh, digital privacy tracking cases that we see now in the news. Uh, Facebook it's a little bit of a different issue, although the underlying issue is identical. The extent to which people uh, have consented to the knowing tracking of their Internet use by, by these companies. Um, in Facebook, users consent to the implantation of a cookie on their computer that tracks where they go on the Internet while they're logged on to Facebook. Uh, Google is being accused of the similar activities, tracking the Internet use of, of uh, Internet users. Uh, but the difference here is that um, uh, those users who use the Safari browser, and typically that's used by uh, Apple users, um, Google apparently was caught uh, writing code that tricked the Safari browser into allowing the implantation of third-party advertising cookies onto the user's computers, even when the Safari users had uh, used the default setting, which uh, allowed for maximum privacy. That uh, these privacy protections were purposefully, according to the reports, um, circumvented uh, by Google. So th although the issue is, is identical in the sense that you've got uh, Internet users who didn't consent to having these large companies track their Internet use, uh, the issue is a little different because Google was caught perhaps um, implanting cookies that shouldn't have been there. In Facebook, the cookies were there with consent, but they should have expired upon logout according to the terms of use. Well, one of the things that irritates me the most is that I think the United States government is doing an absolutely crummy job of dealing with digital privacy. Uh, but I'd be interested to hear what you think about how the U.S. is currently governing digital privacy and how it compares to the European Union or other developed countries. Right. Uh, that's a very good question. The U.S. right now does not have any overarching um, federal standard in place for digital privacy. Uh, the, the, the leader in this is the European Union. Back in 1995, uh, Brussels 
uh, enacted the uh, Data Privacy Directive. Um, this goes beyond simply the, the narrow case in, in uh, the Facebook case, which is internet tracking. Uh, it goes to, to a much broader area of the economy, protecting your personally identifiable information, your PII in Europe is much better protected. Other countries around the globe have adopted similar type measures that uh, are modeled on the EU's privacy directive. For instance, Australia, even some other countries in Asia like Japan um, have national uh, data protection laws. The U.S., in contrast, relies on a system of self-governance. This came out of President Clinton's uh, framework for uh, e-commerce uh, protection. Uh, President Clinton and Vice President Gore authored uh, this framework, which is still a very important document today. Uh, where the bias in the framework is to have the industry governed by self-regulation, meaning it's a matter of contract between the company and the user, and they decide between themselves, supposedly, um, what level of protection they want to afford data. Um, and then, of course, this system doesn't work if you don't have enforcement. Uh, in the United States, according to an article that was just uh, came out by Forbes magazine, uh, there's a three-legged stool of enforcement of digital privacy in the U.S. because we have this self-regulating system. The first is the Federal Trade Commission. Um, technically, there's no actual law that says the FTC is responsible for digital privacy. Uh, but what they do have in their mandate is to police unfair trade practices, and they've decided on their own that they're going to be the nation's privacy watchdog. Um, the second leg of the stool uh, would be state's attorney general. To the extent there are any state laws that govern digital privacy, they can step in. And then the third leg, according to Forbes magazine, is actually private lawyers and class action lawsuits to protect uh, users whose uh, privacy may have been violated. So all three legs of the stool are what's necessary to enforce digital privacy protection in the U.S. because we don't have the EU's da uh, data privacy directive. David, I'm sure our, our listeners would be be interested. Could you tell a little bit about what statutory pr protections may exist at the federal and uh, state levels? Right, and that, that that's also a, a, an important question because uh, lawyers like me who are who are asked to protect um, our, our clients in cli in court, it, it's difficult to protect them if there's not a law that's been violated. And you know, as I, as I said earlier, there's no overarching. Uh, national privacy protection law, we have to rely on older statutes, many of which were written before the invention of the internet, um, some that go back many, many decades. And so we have to work with the courts uh, to fashion remedies um, that meet with the expectations of um, users uh, of the internet in, in the modern age. So for instance, at the federal level, um, the most important statute is what's frequently called the Wiretap Act. It's actually a part of the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. Sometimes that's abbreviated the ECPA, but people call it the Wiretap Act. Um, back, back to the 1930s, uh, Congress passed laws that uh, restricted um, the ability, legally anyway, of people to tap into people's phone lines and, and uh, surreptitiously listen to your phone calls. And these rules were updated at the federal level in 1986 with the Electronic Privacy Communications Act. Um, also, a part of that is the Stored Communications Act, and there's all sorts of interesting laws like that uh, that uh, govern when people can uh, expect expectations of privacy um, and when the federal law will, will prohibit uh, the interception or the misuse of this sort of information. The, the, the Wiretap Act is the primary tool right now uh, that Internet users are using uh, to fight back when their privacy has been violated. Uh, the privacy, uh, the Wiretap Act requires the interception uh, of an in-flight communication, and there are other laws like the Stored Communications Act, uh, which are the flip side, although they're not mutually exclusive, um, of, the, of that statute, where if someone violates your computer um, 
hacks into your computer and steals information that's stored on your computer. It's not the interception of a communication, but it's still the theft of information. That's another federal law. So it's it's a hodgepodge of all sorts of, of older laws that all predate the Internet that are being used by private litigants to protect their privacy. Anything at the state level, David? There are some states that are, that are on the forefront of, of this. Uh, California is is not. Uh, you're not surprised to hear that. You know they're they're, um, they're not being left behind. They, they they have a number of of important statutes that they've passed uh, that are protecting um, users. There, there's an Internet Privacy Act. In fact, is one that is that postdates the invention of the internet at the at the state level. Um, of course, this only applies to um, acts that occurred in California or perhaps uh, victims who who reside in California or people who are injured in California or in those instances when a um, an internet participant chooses California law as the governing law of a contract, then you can have people who are, uh, can apply California law. But it's limited uh, to California. We don't have the an Internet Privacy uh, Protection Act at the federal level. And a couple of other states also have uh, passed some statutes, um, but um, most states have not. California is the leader. Well, before we move on to our next segment, Let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Omelia, creators of the digital war room platform for e-discovery. Do you need to strategize, review and produce documents for litigation, government investigations, or HSR second requests in a single e-discovery tool for every size and every type of matter? Digital War Room eliminates costly pre-processing of collected documents realizing savings of 80% or more, and giving you greater control over e-discovery. Experience end-to-end e-discovery on your Windows desktop, on your internal network, or in our hosted review center. Download a free trial of Digital War Room Pro at www.digitalwarroom.com. That's digitalwarroom.com. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking to David Strait, the co-lead counsel in the Facebook privacy litigation. Before we went to break, David, we were talking a little bit about what statutory protections we have at the federal level primarily, um, and not so much and mostly outdated, and at the state level. Um, and now I'd like to ask you about common law remedies, what might exist. And, and because not all of our listeners are lawyers, you might explain a little bit about what the common law is. Sure, of course. Uh, as we were talking about earlier, because the United States doesn't have an overarching data or privacy uh, protection statute, we have to rely on various older statutes and other laws that can be cobbled together to uh, form a statutory protection grid, if you think of it that way. Um, part of the protection comes from statutes actually passed by various legislatures at the federal or state level that can be used to protect privacy. But the other side of that is what's called common law. This is uh, social norms that have uh, been accepted by judges uh, that can be used as the basis for litigation. Um, torts are a common example of this where um, somebody injures you and, and you go to court and say, that person injured me, I'd like compensation. And the court says, yes, that's part of a social norm. It's a part of the common law that we allow for compensation when you're injured uh, through various uh, actions. 
In the digital privacy arena, there are several common law remedies that might be available. None of these are at the federal level. There is no general federal common law. So this is done on a state-by-state basis. And that can be fairly difficult when you have a national or international actor, for instance, like Facebook. Uh, it can be difficult when you have members of a class who uh, are located in various states that might have different protections. But the common law protections that we look at would be, for instance, the tort of trespass uh, trespass, we're familiar with in the physical sense when somebody without permission comes onto your property and, uh, and invades your space. Um, but this can also be done in the digital level. People can trespass onto your computer. They can hack into your computer. That's, that's a form of trespass. And even though there's no statute that prohibits it, uh, this sort of judge-made law, this, this judge-recognized social norms can be the basis for, for litigation. There's also um, intrusion upon seclusion, which is similar to trespass. Uh, there are conversion common law remedies. Conversion is when somebody interferes with the use of your item so significantly that it's almost as if they stole it. So somebody turns your computer into a zombie, for instance, and, and you have no access to it. That's almost a, a form of conversion. Uh, there's also a misappropriation of image and likeness. There's another lawsuit that I'm not involved in uh, against Facebook where, where Facebook took uh, images and identities of people to help with their sponsored stories. Um, people objected to this as essentially, hey, you're misappropriating my face and my likeness, my image uh, to sell products and to generate revenue. Well, that, that there, there's, that's a common law violation in, in some states. Uh, so there are these these common law remedies, all of which were developed long before the invention of the Internet. Some were developed hundreds of years ago, and right now courts are struggling to figure out how to adopt them into the Internet age. So, so, David, are there standing issues and can a class be certified and, and maybe more fundamentally, how, how are the classes defined? Right. This is a very important question because these Internet, these privacy violations are, are rarely done on a, on a one person by one person basis. They're done to large groups of individuals. So if Facebook, for instance, decides that they're going to um, track the Internet use of their users post logout, and if it's true that, that that violates terms of use and that's actionable, um, it, it's, it's going to affect a large group of people in the exact same way. Uh, in fact, here in the United States, Facebook has 150 million users approximately, and globally it's 800, 900 million unique users. It's difficult to get an actual count because it changes so radically from month to month. But these are a lot, there's a lot of people who are um, uh, impacted in the exact same way. It would be judicially impossible for every single person who feels that their privacy has been violated to go off to court and file a, their own separate lawsuit. It's simply impossible. The only way this can be dealt with, we would say, is on a class-wide basis. For those listeners who are not lawyers, uh, you know, a class action is where the, uh, a single violation can be addressed on behalf of a whole large group of people uh, in, a, uh, in a uniform way. Standing refers to the question of whether or not somebody has the right to bring the claim on a class-wide basis, but also the question of whether they can bring it on their own behalf to begin with before you even go to the issue of, of class action. The hot issue now in some of these privacy cases is whether a, an Internet user has standing to bring a claim where there's no out-of-pocket loss. So, for instance, somebody inappropriately tracks what you're doing on the Internet. They find out your email address without your permission. They find out which websites you visited. And they take that information, they aggregate it, they sell it to an advertiser, and the company makes $3. Have you been harmed? Do you have standing to assert a claim? Uh, if you yourself are not out of pocket $3, nobody stole $3 from your pocket. You still have the information that was stolen. You still have your email address. It's not like you, it's not like identity theft where you're now um, 
no longer able to use your email address. It's the theft of personally identifiable information, but you still have that information. Some of these defendants, some of these Internet uh, industry uh, participants have been arguing that these victims do not have standing to bring claims because they weren't harmed in an out-of-pocket sense, even though uh, they may have had their, uh, um, they may have been harmed in the sense that their PII was stolen. So this is a hot issue in the courts. Uh, certainly, uh, there was a, a case that went before the Supreme Court recently, although the court declined to actually make a decision, make a ruling on it a few weeks ago. The case is called Edwards, uh, where Facebook filed an amicus brief with the court addressing this very question. They wanted uh, the court to rule that there is no standing to bring uh, these sorts of privacy claims when you suffered, you the victim, suffered no actual out-of-pocket loss. Uh, so that's a very hot issue. Uh, that relates to the question of, of class certification uh, simply because if, if you, the lead plaintiff, or you, the person who's bringing the claim, uh, didn't suffer any out-of-pocket loss, can you then assert uh, claims on behalf of other similarly situated people? Well, you've kind of segued us halfway over to, to damage issues, which is what I wanted to talk about next. Um, can, can the plaintiffs establish harm, and how do you calculate that? And what are the real, real-life chances of class members receiving money for their damages? And I want to just interrupt to say that um, John and I just got a, a check from a Google class settlement for a whopping $1.68, um, which makes, you know, which kind of begs the question of, you know, why, why do you get involved with this stuff? And that, that, as you know, David, is not unusual. So if you can remember all of my questions along my winding path, go ahead and take a stab at it. <laughs> well, Sure. Of course, damages and standing are related to each other, just as I told you. But um, damages go beyond simply uh, standing to assert claims uh, when there's no out-of-pocket loss, because there are some statutes that provide for statutory damages. And so there, victims have, have, a, have a, an easier time establishing standing. Uh, so, for instance, under the Wiretap Act, uh, as we had discussed earlier, that's a federal law, predates the Internet, although courts are now uh, using it to enforce uh, privacy rights on the, in the Internet age. That provides for statutory damages of $100 per day per violation up to $10,000. And it, it, these are some small numbers for one person, but they're, they're very large numbers when you're talking about 150 million users of, of a social network. Um, so damages can either be statutory or they can be um, non-statutory, you know, the common law. Uh, the, the damages issues are more difficult when they're not actually set out in the statute. Um, how can a how can a plaintiff uh, establish harm? Is your question? Well, that that's that's the heart of the question. Um, it, it's it's now a big fight in court. Were you harmed if you didn't actually suffer this out of pocket loss? Um, traditional trespass law says, of course, if your if your uh, seclusion is intruded upon, if say uh, in the more traditional context from 100 years ago, somebody breaks into your backyard while you're reading a book in your backyard and they scare you and they're and they're they're not invited there and and you run into your house screaming, there's an intruder in your backyard, well, you didn't suffer any out-of-pocket loss. It's not like somebody stole money out of your pocket, but you, but you were still harmed, they're still damaged. How, how do you establish that damage? Uh, that's a very difficult question in the traditional context when you were simply frightened by an intruder. But it's even more difficult to uh, figure out what damages are when it's simply the theft of your personally identifiable information, sometimes without, without even your knowledge. Uh, you got a check for over a dollar. Happy to hear that, but um, <laughs> we're trying not to spend it all in one place, David. <laughs> right? Uh, it, it's going to be difficult when you have more and more people joining these social networks, more and more people who are harmed by a single act. Um, for them to actually receive uh, these damages is something we will fight hard for in, in the Facebook case. But 
um, there will it will certainly be an issue that Facebook will probably raise. They say, well, how how can how can damages be distributed to these class members? There are other ways that, that damages can be assessed. By the way, there are there's injunctive relief where a, a court or sometimes the Federal Trade Commission uh, can impose rules where they say um, to uh, Facebook or other other entities like Google, you're no longer allowed to behave this way. You're no longer allowed to violate privacy in this way. And that can be a remedy, although it's not actually a check in your pocket, but it's it's certainly a way that um, privacy can be protected. It's through a, a consent decree or through an injunctive relief issued by the court. Hmm. Well, David, I'm gonna for a final final look here. I'm gonna ask you to to peer into your crystal ball and tell our listeners a little bit about what you think the outlook for protection of the digital privacy rights uh, looks like going in the future. Uh, what the courts, the, the trending that's going on there, and and what the future of the the do not track legislation is. Okay. Th- th- those are, of course, the most difficult questions. Thanks for leaving them to the end. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I, well, I, may- I, maybe next year we'll have you back to see how good you predicted. How's that? <laughs> oh, well, I better be very clear, very vague in my uh, <laughs> my predictions. Uh, you know, the outlook doesn't look good from my perspective. I- I'm obviously I- I'm biased. Yeah, I-, I represent victims of of theft of personal identifiable information. I I, I fight for digital privacy rights, and I, I don't see this going well. Um, because we live in a, in, a, in a country where digital privacy rights are, are protected by the self-regulation system, um, it's fairly easy for those in control of the process to craft terms of use and craft these contracts that govern the relationship in ways that benefit them. Uh, how many times are you asked uh, when you download an app or when you visit a website or when you upgrade software to click, I accept the terms of use. How many of those have you ever read? Uh, there is a brilliant researcher uh, at Carnegie Mellon, uh, Professor Lori Craner, who calculated recently how long would it take, how much of your life would it take uh, if you actually read all the terms of use and governing contracts in these online relationships, to un- never leave aside actually understanding them, but actually just to read them. It would take about one month out of 12 months you would spend all four weeks of your vacation, if you're lucky enough to have four weeks vacation, to read all the terms of use just so you know how your relationships are being governed online. That is simply impossible. And these companies know it. It's pretty cynical. And so increasingly what they will do is they will craft more robust protections for themselves and say, but you consented. I can do what I want. I can track your internet behavior. I can use your personally identifiable information as I see fit because I got consent from you when you clicked that button. So in the future, I see more and more of that being an issue. On the flip side, however, there are some nice trends. The first trend I like, the Federal Trade Commission really is stepping up enforcement. Uh, they really are. Uh, they, recently, they've considered themselves to be the privacy watchdog in this country, and I applaud them for it. I wish they would do more. Part of it just may be they're under-resourced. Part of it is that they don't have this overarching statute uh, nationally that we would, we would like. Um, but we, we do like the stepped-up enforcement efforts. I also like the, I like the trend in the courts recently. Um, a number of judges are starting to question the old assumption that personally identifiable information has no actual economic value to the user, and the theft of it therefore has no uh, is no harm. We're seeing a few courts saying, "No, wait a second. Actually, this this does have value to the user, um, and it actually, if you can show that uh, in, in your uh, pleadings in court." That this has value, we're going to allow claims to proceed. So I, I like this. I like that trend. It's an important trend. The courts are waking up to the idea that PII has actual value to the user, and its theft is something that should be compensable. Um, final, what, what is the future of any uh, do not track legislation? Well, I, I'm a cynic. I mean, I have to admit it. Um, I don't know that Congress um, is incentivized right now to pass it. In fact, their incentive is the opposite. 
uh, is simply to continue with the uh, the framework we had um, under President Clinton, which is that we have a, a self-regulating system uh, that we trust that market participants will be actively involved and will decide for themselves what level of protection they want. I don't see Congress yet moving in the direction of saying, okay, this system isn't working. Um, these terms of use are never actually fairly negotiated. They're take it or leave it. And uh, I, I, it's too bad, but I don't, I don't see do not track legislation of any real value coming out of Congress. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's unfortunate, but they have not exactly led the charge here. So thank you for joining us today, David. The ways in which some of the internet giants are violating our privacy are many and and very frightening to me. So it was great to hear from somebody who really is uh, leading the charge in the Facebook litigation. Uh, It was great to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I think this, I agree with you. This is a very important issue for our society, not just for our Facebook users. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.